Saeed Abendini is an American pastor who is imprisoned in Iran. This is a letter that he wrote to his daughter for her eighth birthday, the third birthday of Rebecca's that Pastor Saeed has missed while he's in prison. My dearest Rebecca Grace, happy eighth birthday. You're growing so fast and becoming more beautiful every day. I praise God for his faithfulness to me every day as I watch from a distance through the prison walls and see pictures and hear stories of how you are growing both spiritually and physically. Oh, how I long to see you. I know that you question why you have prayed so many times for my return, and yet I'm not home yet. Now there is a big why in your mind you are asking. Why Jesus isn't answering your prayers and the prayers of all the people around the world praying for my release and for me to be home with you and our family. The answer to the why is who? Who is in control? Lord Jesus Christ is in control. I desire for you to learn important lessons during these trying times, lessons that you carry now and for the rest of your life. The answer to the why is who? The confusion of why has all this happened and why are your prayers not answered yet is resolved with understanding who is in control. Lord Jesus Christ, our God. God is in control of the whole world and everything that is happening in it is for his good purpose, for his glory, and will be worked out for our good. Romans 8, 28. Jesus allows me to be kept here for his glory. He is doing something inside each of us and also outside in the world. People die and suffer for their Christian faith all over the world. And some may wonder why. But you should know the answer of why is who. It is for Jesus. He is worth the price. And he has a plan to be glorified through our lives. I want you to read the book of Habakkuk. He had the same question as you. But see that the Lord answered him in Habakkuk 2.3. The vision comes and doesn't delay on time. Wait for it. Mommy and I always had big desires to serve Jesus and had great vision to be used for his kingdom and for his glory. So today we pay a cost because God, who created us, called us to that. And so I want you to know that the answer to all your prayers is that God is in control and he knows better than us what he is doing in our lives and all around the world. Then, my dear beloved Rebecca Grace, I pray God will bring me home soon. But if not, we will still sing together as Habakkuk did. Hallelujah! Either separated by prison walls or together at home. So let Daddy hear you sing a loud hallelujah that I can hear all the way here in prison. I am so proud of you, my sweet, courageous daughter. Glory to God forever. Amen. Kisses and blessings, Daddy.
I don't know about y'all, I find myself overwhelmed by Pastor Saeed's letter. I, I find myself overwhelmed at what a good father he is. I, I think that quite possibly he disciples his children better from prison than I do in freedom. I, I'm overwhelmed with the clarity with which he takes on where he is and why he's there. I'm, I'm overwhelmed with the readiness and the willingness with which he suffers for Christ. And, and, and did y'all hear in the letter, did you hear the woe is me? Did, did you hear the great burden I bear for Christ? I didn't. I, I didn't hear anything like that. I, I thought he sounded quite pleasant and content with God with his situation, with, with where he is. I'm overwhelmed with a man who is following Christ like Pastor Saeed is following Christ. I'm overwhelmed with how perfectly his letter <laughs> fits into this sermon series. I'm overwhelmed with how perfectly his letter leads right into the passage that we're going to look at today. Folks, the passage we look at today in Mark chapter 8 may be the pivotal passage, may be the key passage, the most important passage in the entire gospel of Mark, especially as it relates to following. We are going to hear from today from Jesus words that must ring in our ears every day, words that must ring in our ears all day. And before we hear those words, I, I want us to hear again just two lines from Pastor Saeed. The, the, the reason I want us to hear it again is just because it's such beautiful evidence that people are actually answering Jesus' call to follow. That they're actually following him no matter where that leads, no matter what it costs. He says in this letter, this letter, by the way, was written this past September. This is very current. And, and he said these words to an eight-year-old, his eight-year-old daughter. People die and suffer for their Christian faith all over the world. And some may wonder why, but you should know the answer to why is who. It is for Jesus. He is worth the price. And then in a the second line, he says this. So today we pay a cost because God who created us called us to that. Now, I don't know about for y'all, but for me, those words, that phrase called us to that is of the highest importance because as I try to measure in my own life, how far will I follow? What am I willing to do? I, I tell you what I don't want to do. I don't want to get to heaven. I don't want to stand before Jesus and have him look at me and go, well, I, I wasn't expecting you to do that. I wasn't expecting you to pay that kind of price. No, folks, does he actually call us to follow him, to follow his word, to live by his word, whatever cost might be perceived in that moment? Does he call us to that? Let's see how that question is answered today as we look in Mark chapter 8 at verse 27. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. It says there, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and some think you're one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you, who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ 
And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. It wasn't a a riddle. It wasn't shrouded in mystery. It wasn't meant to be some kind of metaphor. But in very clear, objective, concrete language, he communicated what was going to happen to him. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know, folks, as we read through this passage, and I'm not done reading it yet, but man, there are so many incredible just one-liners here. A couple that I'm not going to be focusing on in our message this morning, but by themselves make up a, a whole sermon. That, that question to Peter, to the disciples, who do you say I am? Folks, do we understand that's always going to be a personal question? Jesus is not going to ask you who your church believed him to be. He's not going to ask you, what did your family think about me? Who did your parents? Who did your grandparents? It's an intensely personal, face-to-face, eye-to-eye. Who do you believe me to be? And then this line that he, he says to Peter, you're not, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know what, folks? Every one of us in here right now, we're going through decisions. We're going through hurts. We're going through uh, certain issues in our life. Man, what a powerful question to ask ourselves. Am I looking at that through the eyes of God? Am I trying to perceive that the way he would? Or am I just kind of going with the flow with my mind and doing what's natural and just seeing that the way I see it, the way mankind sees it. Man, there's some awesome lines here Jesus gives us. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, listen to this folks, because there's two things. Whoever loses his life for my sake, number one, and number two, and for the gospels. Whoever gives their life to serving and living for me and for the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. And folks, we are seeing that verse lived out in America right now as churches wholesale are turning away from God's word to be accepted by society. Of him, the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father and with the holy angels. You know, I don't, I don't think we have to spend much time unwrapping this passage. You, you can read through it one time and you get it. He's asking for a lot, isn't he? As a matter of fact, I think we could say here, Jesus is asking for everything. But before we look at the what he's asking for, let's stop and realize that the what is anchored to the who. You know, we just heard Pastor Saeed say the why is anchored to the who. In this passage, the what is anchored to the who. Who is this for? It is for the Christ. That's the Greek word. It is for the Messiah. That's the Hebrew word. It is for the anointed one. That's the English word. There is one who is picked. 
There is one who is chosen. There is one who is going to bring God's rule and God's reign, who is going to bring God's kingdom into this world so that righteousness and justice and peace reign over this world. There is one, can you believe this folks, who's going to make everything right. And that one is Jesus. He's the one who's going to do that. Now, I think as Peter confesses that, if if you've been a reader of the gospel of Mark, you started in chapter 1, verse 1, and you now arrive in chapter 8, and you hear Peter confess this, I don't think we're that shocked to hear that, are we? We're not, we're not surprised at this point. As a matter of fact, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, the very first line in this gospel story said he is the Christ, the very Son of God. And after that introduction, we have seen him heal diseases, cast out demons, have answers for everything. We have seen him walk on water, calm the storm, feed the 5,000. We saw him raise the dead to life. So, so we're not that surprised anymore to hear he's the Christ. I, I mean, you see somebody do all that. It's kind of an obvious conclusion. I think he might be the one. Not sure what all he's supposed to do, but that would have to be hit right there, wouldn't it? No, we're not, we're not surprised to hear that confession. But boy, what comes next? What, what comes next is very shocking. Suffering. Rejection. Death? That's, that's not what I thought it would look like when somebody comes and fixes everything. Folks, the Old Testament mind, the Jewish mind, had a concept of the Messiah that, that included some very clear details. He would come and conquer the world. He would conquer the evil nations. He would conquer the idol-worshiping nations. He would bring all the nations of the world up under Israel and in a place where they would come to Jerusalem to know God. It would be this Messiah that would bring this this reign of justice and, and peace and righteousness. And they had that view for a really good reason. Because that's what the Old Testament said. They didn't dream that up. God's Word told them that. What they didn't get is that there was a first coming of this Messiah and there would be a second coming of the Messiah. They were looking for the warrior king. They were looking at that king that was like King David, the second coming. And that's what we look forward to too, isn't it? We're also looking for that warrior king, that king who will come and conquer evil and conquer the nations and he will reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem on a throne, very physical, very literal, the millennial reign of Christ. We look forward to that too. But what they didn't see, what they missed in God's word is all the passages that talked about a first coming, not a, not a warrior king, but a suffering king. I don't know why they missed it. I think partly it's easy for us to see because we look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And so we'll read a Psalm 22 and say, oh my gosh, this is the cross. We'll read Isaiah 53, which I encourage you to do. Isaiah 53, written over 750 years before Christ, before the cross. And it doesn't read like a prophecy. It reads like a news event. It reads like somebody is literally describing Christ, his life, and what happened to him at the cross. They didn't, they didn't get it. They didn't pick that up. 
And so when Jesus introduces this concept, and this is the first place he does it. This is the first time in his ministry that he begins to reveal what's going to happen to his life. It would be very confusing, if not just downright disagreeable, right? As we see evidenced by Peter disagreeing with him. And by the way, isn't Peter just spot on right here? I mean, in one sentence, you're it, you're the Messiah, you're the one. And in the very next sentence out of his mouth, and you're wrong. How do you, how do you put those two sentences together, Peter? Man, aren't you glad we're not like Peter? Man, we don't ever utter any of that foolishness before God. What's wrong with Peter? Now, let me tell you something. We're going to come back to this. A we, we, couple more sermons down the road here. We're going to come back and look at a little bit greater detail. This whole concept of a, of a Messiah that would suffer and die for us. But today what I want us to see is just how strategic that placement. Right before Jesus is going to issue this invitation for you and I to follow. And, and, and he's going to map out. He's going to kind of unfold this cost of following. It's kind of like he's saying, hey, I paid first. You will not be, you are not being called to do anything that I've not already done for you. Which is kind of an interesting concept because I, I know why I would do that or at least attempt to do that, at least to attempt to be that kind of follower because I'm, I'm following the Son of God. I, I'm following somebody who loved me, who, who died for me. Uh, yeah, he's worth it. That's what we've been getting at this in Mark. He's worth it. But why does he do that for me? We've called this series hashtag worth Jesus. You think somewhere in heaven Jesus has written hashtag worth Randy? I, I, I mean, it, do I add value to Christ? Do I add value to heaven? Is that why he pays this price? No. We might do this because he's worthy. He does not pay a price for us because we're worthy. He does that because he's just that good. One more reason, isn't it? One more reason on what is becoming for me the mountain of reasons that we would follow him no matter the cost. Now, if you look at verse 34, you see Jesus calling the crowds. Now, this is kind of a, you know, there was a crowd and then he's talking to the disciples and then he's calling back the crowd. You know, there, I think there's some meandering going on. He's, he's out in public. People are coming up and listening and then they're kind of moving on and moving around. And then he's just talking to the disciples and then he, then he calls everybody in. Now, we've seen, you know, through this series, there's several times I have pointed out the crowd. And we've talked about in some of these stories, the crowd might have been dozens of people, a couple hundred people. But then there's other places up to Mark 8 where the crowd would literally be thousands, if not even tens of thousands. So Jesus knows how to build a crowd, doesn't he? I imagine if you can cast demons out of people and raise dead people to life, you're going to build a crowd. And yet what he's about to do next is anything but a crowd builder, folks. These words out of his mouth are not going to build a crowd. The words coming out of his mouth are going to thin a crowd. Now he's talking to people that have been following him. Town to town, event to event, from their house down to the shore. They've been following. But he says, hey, listen, I want to invite you to, a, I guess we would say, a little bit more formal relationship a little bit more committed following. And he gives us three requirements for being a follower of Christ. 
hey, if we're going to follow Christ, and, and folks, I think in these three things, they kind of build on each other. We have to do number one to get to number two, and one and two have to be in place before we get to, to number three. But the first thing we have to do, folks, we have to deny ourselves. He says, if you're going to follow me, you've, you've got to deny yourself. Um, folks, don't think of Lent when you hear that. Jesus is not asking us to deny ourselves some little treat, some, some goody, some worldly pleasure for a moment because we, we love him so much. This is, this is so far radically beyond that. He, he's not calling us to deny ourselves something. He's calling us to deny ourselves ourselves. Randy, deny yourself, your soul position. You, you hold this position in your life of soul authority. You hold this position in your life of soul determiner of goals and dreams and, and directions and what you're going to be and do and what's important. Deny yourself that. Let me live in that spot. You see, I, I don't determine the idea being, I don't determine how I'm going to handle that hurt. He determines that. I don't determine how I'm going to handle this decision. He determines that. I don't determine what love is. He determines that. I don't determine what the value and the purpose and the meaning of money is. He determines that. I don't determine my relationship with the church. Wow, this is a big one because we kind of approach the church, don't we folks, with a little bit of a consumer mentality. We kind of approach the church the same way we do a mall or a good restaurant, do I like it? Do I get what I need? Is it serving my... I consume. Hey, get out of that position and instead look to me to lead you into how you give, how you serve, how you relate with the body of Christ. We deny ourselves that role of king of life. Now, once we do that, and my gosh, aren't we always working on that? But then as we build that denial of self, then we're maybe ready to take that next step and it gets a little harder. We take up our cross. Boy, it's hard for us, I think, in, in our culture, our world today to process the idea of, of what Jesus is saying here because we've made such a beautiful thing out of the cross, haven't we? I mean, we know something very ugly happened on it. We, we, we know something horrible happened on it, but it was a beautiful product, Right? It, it was our salvation. And so for us, the cross is, is our symbol. It's beautiful. We, we make jewelry out of it. We sing songs about it. We adorn our churches and our, and our homes with it. Nothing but good things comes to our mind when we think of the cross. Folks, nothing could be further from the truth when Jesus uttered these words to that audience right there. Or when Mark recorded these words in the gospel and then that church in Rome opened them up and they heard Jesus say, take up your cross. That was an instrument of death. It, it, it was an instrument of, of execution. I, I think to probably try to hear how this would have hit their ears, you'd almost have to hear him say, hey, take up your electric chair. Well, what would you think? You're, you, you meet a friend, you know, to have lunch with this week and notice I got a new piece of jewelry on. He say, hey, what's that on your necklace? Oh, it's, a, it's an electric chair. Oh. Huh. I got to get my phone. <laughs> that would, is it just me or would that be weird? That would be weird. And I would think if, you're, if I see you this week wearing a little electric chair around you, I'm going to think you're a weird person. Not only would it be weird, we'd be almost be a little bit uncomfortable with that, wouldn't we? You know, anybody going to get a big 17 by 24 portrait of electric chair and put it up above the... The mantle? 
there above the fireplace? See, do you see how when Jesus says, take up your cross, that almost means nothing. It's just, wee, that's a good thing. But for those ears that heard it for the first time, what? Only, the only, thing, only images that would have come to their mind would be shame and death. It is an instrument of executing, killing people. Now, is, is Jesus calling us to kill ourselves? I don't think we have to work through that a whole bunch. I don't, I don't think any of us are struggling with that being maybe the meaning. Uh, I mean, but you stop and think about it, folks. I mean, down throughout history, have we not seen that in the world? Have we not seen that in the United States? Every now and then, one of these kind of charismatic cultic leaders comes along and says, okay, today we all kill ourselves. And then we're watching this horrible news story. I mean, it does happen. Is that what Jesus is leading to? No, and believe it or not, the answer to that question is really found in some very simple grammar. Because the way the verb form is in here, it's a continual activity. In other words, the way this would be read is we daily deny ourselves. We continually deny ourselves. We daily take up our cross. We continually take up our cross. So obviously it's not killing ourselves because you, you only do that one time, right? Y'all are with me on that. It's not real hard to understand. Yeah, just one time. But it's a continual activity. So it's not a physical death. But what Jesus is saying is you come to the place of denying yourself. Really, the next place you're trying to get to is you don't even exist anymore. It's, it's as if you've died and Christ is just living through you. Man, I don't think anybody says this better than Paul. He, he communicates this concept so well when, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Picked up the cross, right? I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live. Oh, I know you, you hear Paul's voice, you see Paul's hands, you, you see Paul's face, but, I, but I'm telling you, I don't even exist anymore. I'm not even here. It is Christ living in me. And, and what you see of my voice and my face and my hands, man, that is just me living by faith in the Son of God. I'm living by faith. Understand faith here, not just to be that single moment where we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord and we're saved, we're born again, we become a child of God, but an ongoing, I'm trusting Christ to lead me. In life now, with Him living in me, living through me, I go where He wants to go, I do what He wants to do, I say what He wants to say, I hear what He wants me to hear. It is Christ living through. Man, Paul, why would you? That's crazy to give yourself over to somebody like that. Why, why would you do that? Oh, because he, he loved me. And He gave Himself up for me. Man, does Paul not just beautifully encapsulate Mark chapter 8 right there? Does he not just beautifully encapsulate that, that picture? So now that we are working at denying ourselves and, and we're really beginning to live, as it's, as it's, I'm not even here. It's Christ living in me. It's Christ living through me. Now we're ready, the third requirement, to follow. That's kind of an interesting requirement, isn't it? You think about it, here's the invitation to follow and the requirement is to follow. So if I understand that correctly, Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you need to follow me. That's a little redundant, Jesus. <laughs> that kind of doesn't make sense, does it? You know, until I think about what we tend to do with Christianity. I mean, y'all have heard me say this, not just in this series, a variety of places and times. I've said, you know, we have a concept of following Christ in America that doesn't actually require us to follow him anywhere. 
You know, folks, don't, don't hear me making a, a judgmental statement about you or me or, or, or somebody else. I, to me, I'm just kind of like saying, this is just reality, isn't it? There are millions, millions of people sitting in a house of worship today. If you, do you follow Christ? Yes, I do. And yet, if you look back in their life, not once in the last seven days, maybe not once in the last month, maybe not once when they can even remember, did a single thought go through their mind? Am I following Christ in the way I'm speaking? Am I following Christ in the way I'm making this decision? Am I following Christ in what I do? Folks, I don't know how you can call yourself a follower. I can call myself a follower. And that's not the dominant thought in my life every day, all day. And yet we do it, don't we? We call ourselves followers and never think, am I following them? So Jesus says, no, we're not going to have something here in name only. This isn't about being a big crowd and you telling everybody, I'm a follower of Christ. No, this is about actually following. You're following me into your marriage. You're following me into your single life. You're trying to understand what I value about that, what I would do in that, how I would live in that in the big picture and how I would live in married or single life in this specific issue today. You're following me into your finances. You're following me into this decision. You're following me to school. You're following me to work. You're following me out to the ball field. Everywhere you go, everything you're doing, your one thought is I'm following Christ into this. And folks, as we follow, because don't you want to know, man, how would I know? How would I know? What does it look like if I'm actually following Christ? Let me tell you something. If you're following, it always ends up leading to one place over and over and over and over. The gospel. Whoever gives his life for my sake and the gospel. If you're following me, let me tell you where I'm going. I'm going to delivering the gospel It's all about the gospel. It's living it and it's proclaiming it. It's living it, knowing every day there's one great joy. There's one great hope. There's one great love. There's one way to be forgiven. And that is my clinging to the cross. Oh, folks, we don't cling to the cross just the day we come to salvation. We do that every day so that we don't slip back into trying to work our way into God's pleasure, work our way into God's favor, or we don't slip back being buried under our guilt and our our shame, but every day we're holding on to his grace and love. And when you every day hold on to it, you every day celebrate, you every day enjoy, you every day have peace. And when you have that and you're living it, it can't help but come across these lips and so when you're following them into that school into that job into that relationship into that decision there's just this one dominant thought how does the gospel come out in this how is the gospel proclaimed in this if you're following christ the gospel ought to be popping up and folks if it's not if it's not popping up for you, it's not popping up for me. I have no idea what words of encouragement, what words of comfort I could give you that would suggest you should be at peace with the idea that you're a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. Because he's going somewhere. And if I'm following him, I'm going the same place he's going. Followers, follow. And in our culture, in our world, if you follow, you'll pay for it. This culture will not reward you for that. This culture will not applaud you for that. 
Jesus never says that all of us will pay the same thing. My gosh, are any of us in here paying what Pastor Saeed is paying right now? I've never sat in a prison for two years for the only reason being that I claim the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not paying the cost he's paying. I don't know that there's anything I can do right now at this moment to even pretend like I'm paying that kind of cost. But the Bible doesn't say we'll all pay the same cost. It doesn't say we'll all pay the ultimate cost. What it does say in this invitation is that when you and I take that first step in following, that we do it with an understanding, with a readiness, and with a willingness that I will follow wherever this leads. And no cost that the world exacts from me will deter me from following him. And if I lose everything, I've lost nothing. I have my soul and I have eternity. And I'm kind of starting into next week's sermon. And anything lost will be restored a hundred times over forever in perfection. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the one. He is the only one who can. He is the only one who will usher in righteousness and peace and justice across this planet. He is the only one that can usher you and me into the very presence of God. And the shocking thing is, folks, he didn't do that first as a warrior king. Oh, he could defeat the big, bad, awful nation. He could defeat the horrible leader. But folks, our greatest enemy is not a dictator or a a king or a certain nation. Our greatest enemy is sin and death and hell. What difference does it make what I gain? What difference does it make what enemy is defeated if I go to hell? No, he came first as a suffering king. A king who would die for And conquer sin and death and hell so that I wouldn't have to. And it is that love and it is that king that we follow. Does he ask us to follow him no matter the cost? Well, folks, I would say not only does he ask, I would say there is no timidity in him. There is no tentativeness in his voice when he calls you and I to a following that could cost us everything and he's worth it let's pray heavenly father I would pray for each of us today as I've tried to pray for myself this week to really discern the status of my following you am I even a genuine follower Lord we have We have sometimes just given ourselves to such a cultural Christianity. We claim something in name. We sit in a building periodically and we follow a a set of rules. Without ever thinking about really actually following you. Lord, help us to discern right now. Number one, if we're genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Help us then to discern what's the health of my following, what's the strength of my following. 
And God, as I pray that, I am, I am so grateful that I can absolutely trust that whatever you point out in my life, in our lives right now, you do that from such a spirit of grace and love, a readiness to forgive and to help. And so, Lord, I ask you to, to do that surgery in my heart and mind so that I rightly see what's going on. So that I can then rightly take the next step. Lord, I would believe that many, many of us, if not close to all of us in here, we want to take the, the right next step in following you. We, we want our next step to follow you into all these pieces of our lives. Show us what that looks like, Lord. Maybe for some in here today, it is to follow you into salvation. It is to follow you into a genuine relationship with the living God. Maybe it's to follow you into believer's baptism. Maybe it's to follow you into a, a relationship with what you love the most, your bride, the church, and get connected to what you love. Lord, what is the decision we all need to make in following you right now? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.